This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. It's no secret that members of the Trump administration, up to and including Trump himself, are parroting the views of white nationalist and white extremist groups. These organizations are tied into alt-right media outlets like Breitbart and others, where they spread this propaganda to the masses. We're going to try something a little different today. I'll be joined by a guest co-host, Hassan Ahmad is an immigration attorney and anti-white nationalist activist from Virginia. Hassan has been deeply involved in obtaining the archived writings of John Tanton, one of the men behind the current white nationalist movement in America. Hassan connected me to Katie McHugh. Katie is a former white nationalist who has renounced her views and is working hard to undo the damage she did when she held them. She's a former staffer for Breitbart and other alt-right media where she was in constant correspondence with Stephen Miller at the Trump White House. She's exposed those emails and the deep ties of Miller into the white nationalist movement in America. You will not replace us! You will not replace us! You will not replace us! Hello, Charlie, we're back! Heimbach sees overlap between Trump's message and white nationalist ideology. He has shown us that the majority of everyday Americans support our sort of message. You know what? Yeah, make America great again. Build a wall. Kick these people out. This is my country. This, this all belongs to me. Trump demurred when asked whether he'd condemn supportive comments from former Ku Klux Klan leader David Duke. I have to look at the group. I mean, I don't know what group you're talking about. You wouldn't want me to condemn a group that I know nothing about. One person about. is dead and 19 injured after a speeding vehicle drove into a group of protesters but you marching also peacefully through downtown Charlottesville. Very fine people on both sides. So we just got in a new batch of emails from uh, Breitbart reporter Katie McHugh. The Southern Poverty Law Center has made public excerpts of emails sent by White House senior advisor Stephen Miller, who was a key figure shaped immigration policy for President Trump. The email messages from 2015 and 2016 show Miller's support of white nationalist websites and ideologies. My name is Katie McHugh. I've exposed eight far-right extremists in the past 15 months by working with civil rights groups and legendary nonprofits. 
I'm very excited now in this stage of my life to help the most vulnerable in society, including people of color, immigrants, those who practice Islamic faith, and those who this current presidential administration opposes the most and seeks to punish through use of authoritarian policies. Sorry, not sorry. So Katie, you spent a bit of time in the alt-right. What is the difference, if you can explain to us, between the alt-right, white supremacy, and white nationalism? What are some of the core beliefs that you're aware of as part of this movement? Well, I can say, I think we should begin with Aristotle here. I don't want to sound pretentious, but everything is on a trajectory. This is also just basic calculus. So one of the things Aristotle spoke about was habit. And one thing you witness with the alt-right, because the media treated them as a trolley humorous force that's just online and it's backing Donald Trump and it's young people. The fact is, is that everything that they said, ironically, and I'm making air quotes, eventually became unironic. So whenever people thought they were, quote unquote, trolling about saying the 19th Amendment should be repealed, and you had white supremacist media figure, Richard Spencer, eventually admitting, no, I don't believe women should have the right to vote. All these memes and things you see on Twitter and the way that these mobs were organized so much so that they became, it was almost like blunt force trauma when it came to harassment for media figures. They were not joking. And in the case, too, with someone like Stephen Miller, who's one of the most powerful people in the U.S. government, especially when it comes to people who are not white. So who is Stephen Miller and why is it so important that we understand his thinking? Stephen Miller is one of the closest advisors to President Trump. He is the architect of Trump's immigration policy and also has the president's ear on foreign policy matters. Stephen Miller, for his entire career, has had anti-immigrant leanings for some people affiliated with the alt-right because it's an amorphous group and doesn't have a membership role, if you know what I mean. They view non-white people and people who practice the Islamic faith as not only dangerous individuals, but an existential threat to the country. And this does tie into eugenics, which unfortunately, America has a very dark history with eugenics and race science, and a history which John Tanton drew from. And helps shape the anti-immigrant agenda that has sought renewed energy from the emergence of the alt-right and renewed energy from the Trump campaign, and which we now see the full force turned against the most desperate and vulnerable people in the world who are punished purely because of their country of origin, their ethnicity, and the face that they practice. Katie, you seem so articulate and passionate and human. And when we paint these pictures in our head of the other side, we sort of create these villains, I think. I want to be respectful for your privacy and safety. But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you got caught up in the movement so that we could have a better understanding as to how other people get caught up in the movement. Thank you for asking that because I think that everyone's path is different, but mine could help explain some of the groundwork for other young people currently trapped in this who don't quite know how to get out. The alt-right yeah. and the far-right are very much like a gang. You know, there's a no-snitching policy. <laughs> and I think that many, many young people, especially, let's say Trump does not win re-election in 2020 this year, a lot of young people are going to wonder, how do I get out of this? And how do I reconnect with other people again and have a healthy, loving life full of good friendships, good connections across backgrounds? So, 
I will just say that I'm from Pennsylvania, regular conservative town, and I was raised like, I, I think the joke is you're born a lapsed Catholic. So <laughs> that was my upbringing, regular childhood. I was very nerdy, was, you know, constantly reading. And I was politically inclined. People will always talk about 2004 election. You know, people were very excited about George W. Bush because it's a red county. And 2008, of course, with the banking crisis, things got much more serious. And of course, the Iraq war was still going on. So I was chatting with one of my best friends, her dad, and I was regular Republican, fully supporting the Iraq war and in the war in Afghanistan. And he said, well, why don't you read this person named Joe Sobran? Joe Sobran was a former senior editor for National Review. He was fired by William F. Buckley because he could not control his anti-Semitism. It ate him alive, almost like a neurological virus. And I'm 18. I had never met someone who practiced the Jewish faith, who had a Jewish background, nothing. I didn't understand anti-Semitism. And I was reading this essay that was recommended to me called The Reluctant Anarchist, saying how all government is evil and the Constitution has already been so violated, we just need to go back to something like pre-Articles of Confederation. Okay. <laughs> this is very important to understand is that there is a serious libertarian to far-right pipeline. Very serious. And the far right, of course, is just steeped in eugenics, steeped in utterly discredited, unjustifiable race science. But that is how it begins. One day, when I was 14, I was standing in an alley, and I was smoking a joint, and a man who was twice my age, with a shaved head and tall black boots, came up to me, and he snatched a joint from my lips. Then he put his hand on my shoulder, and he looked me in the eyes, and he said, that's what the communists and the Jews want you to do to keep you docile. I was 14 years old. I'd been trading baseball cards and watching Happy Days. I didn't really know what a Jew was. <laughs> it's true. And the only communist that I knew was the, you know, bad Russian guy in my favorite Rocky movie. <laughs> and since I'm here bearing my soul with you, I can reveal that I did not even know what the word docile meant. <laughs> Dead serious. But it was as if this man in this alley had offered me a lifeline. For 14 years, I'd felt marginalized and bullied. I had low self-esteem. And frankly, I didn't know who I was, where I belonged, or what my purpose was. I was lost. And overnight, because this man had pulled me in, and I had grabbed on to that lifeline with every fiber of my being, I'd gone from Joni Loves Chachi it's a full-blown Nazi. This also happened to other members of the, of the far right, including virulent anti-Semites. There is one individual who started with the Mises Institute. You would recognize his name if I said it. He is listed on the SPLC as a hate figure. But he started getting into this economist called Ludwig von Mises. And from there went to the Mises Institute. You're introduced to LouRockwell.com. Lou Rockwell used to be a staffer for Ron Paul and is believed that he wrote some of the appallingly racist Ron Paul newsletters. So there's no firewall between these two. And I'm reading Joe Sobran from the perspective as a Catholic because he has a volume of very conservative Catholic writings. As he deteriorated and became 
and this happens to a lot of people in the far right, more and more isolated, more and more bitter and angry. Then he started to talk about topics I did not understand because, of course, in school you learn all about the Holocaust, and I was you know, appalled by this. But again, there needs to be more education on anti-Semitism, especially now with kids being connected to the internet and understanding the implications of what they're reading. Because when I was growing up, there was none of that. No one could connect the dots and explain to young people, this is why it's important to acknowledge history. This is what these words mean, and this is the impact it has on very vulnerable communities. So I'm 19, and I fill out just, you know, you're filling out internship applications. I fill out one for the Institute for Humane Studies, and they ask for your five intellectual influences. I listed G.K. Chesterton, a couple other libertarian economists. And my first one I listed because I was, you know, I'm like, well, I'm trying to be Catholic. I'm trying to be a better Catholic with Joe Sobran, the director of journalism programs at IHS, Institute for Humane Studies, which is a Koch-funded program. His name was John Elliott, and he reached out to me and said, you're the first person I know that's listed Joe as an intellectual influence. He was a friend of mine. Now, I don't know this person. He emails me when I'm in college, 19. What John Elliott meant was that he thought he had found a young person who was as anti-Semitic as he was. Not that she was a Catholic and needed to be warned away from the very dangerous aspects of Joe Sobran's writing. So John Elliott carved out an extra funding for me, sent me to the Daily Caller in 2011 as an intern, where I started to get my first news clips. When I graduated college in 2013, by now John Elliott was at the ISI, which it was a collegiate network. There's a lot of acronyms in the nonprofit world. I went there and then 10 months out of college, I was poached by Breitbart and started working there full-time. John Elliott is an individual that I expose as an unrepentant neo-Nazi. Noted Hitler enthusiast is what I refer to him as, and so do other reporters who have worked on stories about him. Because you will see within his emails, which I provided, that he is using appalling anti-Semitic language. He is praising Adolf Hitler. He is calling students that he mentored homophobic slurs. And the broader picture is that he is one of many people on the far right who are extreme, part of the alt-right, who want to infiltrate conservative institutions for which they have enormous contempt and push them towards the far right and spread out other people who are on the alt-right amongst them so that everyone has what they would call an insurance policy. So if someone was exposed and they were fired you could immediately count on four or five other publications and think tanks to hire them and to speak up against their firing because they violated what they called euphemistically political correctness. That was the beginning of the environment. And talking to another friend of mine, he said, you know, looking at this, I don't think you ever had a chance. And I, unfortunately, I think that's the case for many, many young people, especially growing up whenever we see this Trump's election, the Pandora's box has unleashed. Holy shit. Yeah, that's crazy. I have so many questions. What other sort of on-roads do you see ways that young people get radicalized and get sucked up into this movement or get infected by this virus? Well, let me start by speaking about my experience, because one of my conservative critics, very strong critic back in the day when I was working for Breitbart, he said, this is fascinating because unlike most young people who are radicalized in Twitter direct message groups, it seems like Katie was radicalized in the old world way <laughs> by actually wow. meeting with people. It was sort of a white nationalism 1.0. Yeah. 
What we see now is that people are increasingly isolated. I would say I'm not a fan of parents policing their kids' phones and things like that. As you grow into an adult, you need to learn how to have an eternal private life and to grow that way and become yourself. There's a great article about this. I'm not sure if it was Vice, maybe Washington Post, but they wrote about how schools are really struggling to deal with the barrage of neo-Nazi and far-right propaganda that their students see every single day because it's everywhere. It's on Twitter. It's on Instagram because in your stories, you'll just click on this. All of a sudden, you see this horrific image. One of the popular ones that the Nazis like to use is a crudely drawn gas chamber where someone's face is in there and then someone else is flipping a switch. Yes. And typically, the image portrays Trump as the guard and some pundit, and this is appalling, I apologize for describing this, but this is what young kids see, a pundit that they don't like, usually of Jewish descent. This country has seen a rise in violence by white supremacists. That includes the murders of 11 people at a Pittsburgh synagogue last fall, a deadly encounter at a white nationalist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017, the murders of nine people at a church in Charleston in 2015, and the deaths of six people at a Sikh temple in Wisconsin in 2012. You see today white nationalism as a rising threat around the world. I don't really... That's what 14-year-olds are seeing on Instagram. And the reason why is because these tech companies are unaccountable, unelected as well, of course, and they're not regulated. Of course, we see it didn't open up a whole new age of human connection. Instead, human beings became the product. The people who use these services, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, places like that. And Twitter in particular is particularly bad because they do not do anything. Their terms of service for all these platforms are deliberately vague. So this content can run wild because the more engagement that they get, the more advertising revenue that they make, the more profit that they have, the richer they get. Capitalism is very comfortable with, I'm going to say like small f fascism here, because it generates revenue. And it also helps tamp down any social movements that would protest against income inequality, the vast income inequality in particular we're seeing now, which is just as bad as it was in the 1920s, right before the horrific 1929 stock market crash. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. a question. This might seem like a silly question, but it feels right. Give us an idea of what water cooler talk was around the Breitbart office. That's an interesting case because at least at Daily Caller, in my experience, we were all in what we called the bullpen. It was an open office. We were able to talk to each other, people throwing paper Mm. airplanes, able to say, hey, can you edit this story for me? At Breitbart, everyone was worked remotely. We did not even have a Slack channel until sometime summer 2015. That was a big deal. So it was very isolating. 
we didn't really get a chance to talk that much. And of course, management is little like, I guess, how do you call it? Like shop talk and chit chat as possible in the Slack channel. So yeah, I was going to say, do you think, do you think that was by design? Oh, yes. Yes. Because they're a very guarded company, especially because they've been involved in multiple lawsuits. We were, for example, ordered never to post anything about Shirley Sherrod, who's unjustly fired, I strongly believe, on social media, write any stories about her, speak about her in the Slack channel. Because Breitbart was very concerned that people would take a screenshot and pass it to a reporter who's a friend of theirs and say, look at this as a means to speak up about a company practice because they typically ignored all employee concerns. They're very closed off. And that's just how some companies operate. And I treat that as a neutral observation. In my case, I was completely alienated. I had to fight not to work seven days a week because that went on for three months. And I said, I'm running a house. I have multiple tenants. I need to get to a bank. And I also need to schedule doctor's appointments. This schedule is not working for me. And we also did not discuss this before I signed on to the company. So we spoke after I threatened to quit and they threatened to sue me and the nonprofit I was going to work for. And they said, okay, you can work five days a week. So I'm online nonstop. I'm working for Breitbart, which is becoming increasingly radicalized. You saw with the Ferguson unrest in particular, and then the Baltimore unrest after the police murders of unarmed young black men. And so Breitbart was speaking in very explicit derogatory racial tones. Then Trump runs for office. By this time, I'm living in Lynchburg with my boyfriend, who's also a white nationalist. I'm constantly talking to Steve Bannon every day. I am surrounded by nothing but right-wing people because I have moved away from my friends for lower cost of living. I do not have a social life. I am on Twitter 24-7 looking for story leads, having my brain pump full of right-wing propaganda. And very importantly... I'm talking to Stephen Miller every single day as he sends me crime story after gruesome crime story and trying to pin that and tie the blame for violence onto an entire vast, vast diverse group of people, Latino people and Muslims. What was he like, Stephen Miller? What was he like? His demeanor, his worldview? How how would you describe him? He was obsessive. He wasn't mean. Someone like Steve Bannon would lose his temper, of course, and start shouting and cursing people out. Steve would get like very high on emotion. He'd get very excited. And then he'd get very angry. Miller was not like that. Miller would get very animated when it came to pointing out demographic changes. He got very animated, which I found bizarre at the time in 2015 after the Charleston, that racist massacre, which was a terrorist attack against the African community in Charleston, South Carolina. He did not mention Dylan Roof once. He did not say anything about the nine black victims or their families who lost their lives that day. The only thing he was fixated on was Confederate statues being taken down to say we can't have these hate magnets in our cities. Obviously, they belong in a museum. They shouldn't be prominently displayed as if this is a great public thing that we should revere. That's nonsense. But he talked about that. And not only that, he talked about too how... Many families who had Confederate soldiers also fought against Nazi Germany in World War II. Very Dinesh D'Souza-like kind of historical revisionism, which is typical on the right. That's the only way that they can survive by doing what they think are, I use the word intellectual very lightly here, but intellectual acrobatics. 
And so Miller was concerned about that, also fixated on Amazon for not selling the Confederate flag anymore. And he was very angry. He's like, well, they still sell the hammer and sickle flag. I'm sorry, but I don't see people adopting the hammer and sickle flag and going out and murdering people who look different than them based purely on their appearance. And he pushed me to write a story about that because, again, this is something I've tried to emphasize in other interviews as well. Miller was introduced to me and other reporters at Breitbart as someone who we took direction from. Breitbart is completely lying whenever they say that he was just a regular staffer pitching stories. That is incorrect. He was introduced to me by Matt Boyle, our Washington editor, with the oversight of Steve Bannon and editor-in-chief Alex Marlowe as someone that I would take stories from and take direction from and what's right. And he was editing everything up into including specific words and headlines and story placement on the website. If you go to the Southern Poverty Law Center and their first expose on Miller, you will see that he was dictating editorial coverage at Breitbart. It's very clear from the emails. International lead today, the White House is standing by Stephen Miller, President Trump's senior advisor, but they are not denying the legitimacy of a trove of emails given by a former editor at Breitbart to the Southern Poverty Law Center that the center says clearly show Miller as a center as a Senate aide before Trump won, pushing a white nationalist agenda. And so I have this person who's emailing me day and night calling all the time to say, have you heard this story? Have you seen this? Do you want to write about this? Can you write about this? Nonstop. I had no normalcy in my life. And my case may be a bit more extreme than other kids, like at least someone who's a sophomore in in high school can go play sports, play a marching band, go home to his family. But there are a lot of people, I think, too, we're going to see this, who are like me, who are completely surrounded by this stuff. And you just get dragged deeper and deeper. And as you radicalize, you try to out-radicalize the radicals to impress them to fit into the group because every human Mm. being has a need to belong. So you try to become more extreme so that they admire you and want to include you. And that's de-radicalization and radicalization. I can only speak from my experience. I definitely recommend, especially people in my position, to reach out to the Southern Poverty Law Center and to reach out to groups like Life After Hate. I work with them they're phenomenal, very compassionate, and there's no judgment. They just want to help you heal because it is traumatic going through any kind of radical group, like any kind of gang. And for you to be able to help other people, you have to heal yourself. So that was my experience. You're in the thick of this, right? Like, How old are you now? Do you mind me asking? I'm 29, but I was in the thick of it when I was 19, 23, and 24. I was 24 whenever I was talking to Stephen Miller every day or almost every day. So your life is basically about this movement at this point, I would assume. And even if you didn't want it to be, Stephen Miller made it difficult for it not to be. At what point did that start to crack for you? What I'm curious about is, was there something specific that made you decide to leave the movement? Was it something that built up after a lot of time? How did that happen? Yes, uh, that's a great question. For me, looking back now, I was absolutely shattering under the stress and the radicalization and just like the pain and that comes with isolation because it is like you experience severe emotional neglect and that changes your personality. I could feel myself becoming very angry, very bitter, very prideful as well, while at the same time being extremely fearful. 
your emotions become almost distilled to a base level. But at the same time, that was my source of income. And I respected Bannon at the time. And I wanted to stick with my job. And, you know, it's election year, you got to see us through. But as you have a quieter life and you become self-reflective and just honest with yourself, yes, I was definitely shattering under the stress. When I was fired, they said, she's a disgruntled employee. I'm like, no. Being fired was one of the best things that ever happened to me because I was able to get out of the cult, starting to get out of the cult of the far right and the cult of Breitbart. I've seen a lot of other reporters describe the company as cult-like. And from my experience, it kind of was. So, and actually I had a great conversation with Oliver Darcy at CNN, talking to him. I said, hey, thanks for bringing the crazy tweets that got me fired (laughs) to their attention because it really did help set me down on this path of healing. I think Oliver's great. And it's a good thing to be aware of yourself and be able to say that and to just come to terms, say, yes, what I did was wrong. And now I'm here to make amends. Unfortunately, it wasn't that easy because I slipped deeper and deeper into the alt-right because they were, at that time, the only people who were around me. I think I was 25, 26. Didn't know what to do, but I was immediately recognizing that these people were evil. I did not hear about the Charlottesville March until I believe I heard about it on August 1st at a V-Dare fundraiser that was held at a Daily Caller editor's apartment. Okay, this was August 1st, 2017. And when I heard about it, I was completely horrified. I told people, do not go, do not go. People are going to die. People are going to get hurt. We were on the internet. What are you, this is, this is crazy. This is madness. Because even though I was steeped in the far right, I was talking at the time too, to a lot of conservatives who were growing alarmed at this because the alt-right didn't go back in the box after Trump won. We viewed them as sort of like the vanguard to push things farther and farther to just like what they call own the libs to help smash through neoliberalism, push past mainstream media and get this who we thought was a working class billionaire in office. Of course, that's all propaganda, but we believed it at the time. So I denounced Charlottesville for doing this. I was doxxed by Elliot Klein, who went by Eli Mosley. I was also doxxed by Laura Loomer, bizarrely enough, and I got Tons of harassment and attacks and vicious, vile, you know, the misogynist, creepy things that they say to women. There were several months where I just was thinking, okay, what do I do? Like, these people are clearly nuts. And I just thought, let's try to have a normal life. And so I just picked up waitressing jobs. And that was great. I loved it. (laughs) You know, I had very diverse clientele. I love talking to my customers. I worked with people of all different backgrounds who are just very, very sweet to me and, and protective. It would sound cliche as, like I said, and then I went to go work for restaurants and my eyes were opened. But the fact is, is that I had always been that person. It was like washing the grime off the window. I was like, oh, I was like, why did I ever work for that crazy company? I really should have just picked up and left Breitbart and said, you want to sue me? Go ahead. (laughs) I'm out. And just been around normal people because the isolation was really taking even a physical toll on me like it would for anyone. So there was that. And because I'm a researcher, I keep receipts of everything. And I was trying to write about an extraordinarily painful experience I had when I was trying to escape from the alt-right. And conservative publications were not interested in it because it was a Me Too experience. And we also had the Kavanaugh hearings going on, and they were already hyper-aggressive towards Christine Blasey Ford. There was another publication which actually circulated my essay amongst members of the alt-right, and I learned about this via email from one of them. 
So through intermediaries, I approached BuzzFeed. I spoke to journalist Rosie Gray for an extended period of time. Very interesting experience. Rosie was very kind, understanding. But at the same time, I was not satisfied with the profile because I felt it was too focused on me. It was overlong. And that, of course, that's like an editorial decision. And understand, too, I'm not attacking BuzzFeed. I think they do wonderful work. I just thought, well, I have so many leads for you guys to pursue because we have a serious white nationalist problem on our hands. Far right there in media and government. I was glad to work with them. And then I thought, I know I have emails from Stephen Miller because there was a lot of talk in DC media circles that I had two or three mentioning VDARE. And I'm thinking, I know I have more than that. A trove of emails released by the Southern Poverty Law Center show now senior White House advisor Stephen Miller pushing theories from white nationalist sources to far-right website Breitbart. In one email dated October 2015, while Miller still worked for then-Senator Jeff Sessions, he touts what he saw as the dangers of allowing hurricane victims from Mexico to come to the U.S. They will all get TPS, he writes. That's temporary protection status. He goes on to write, that needs to be the weekend's big story. TPS is everything. Then he sends then-Breitbart staffer Katie McHugh an article from prominent white nationalist website VDARE of the dangers of TPS. So after the BuzzFeed article came out, Michael Hayden from the SPLC, he emailed me and said, I'm sorry about your pain because I'd written a little bit about a very painful experience that I had on a now-defunct Twitter account. And we started to work together on other stories. And I said, you know, I do have VDAR links that Steve Miller sent. And he was shocked. And so we started working with the SPLC. And I wanted to work with a nonprofit, especially with someone like the reputation of the Hate Watch site and the Southern Poverty Law Center's legacy of, in part, sticking up for very vulnerable people like African-Americans who want to sue for discrimination, but because... Their wealth has been stolen from their families since they were brought, like, for, for decades and even centuries. They don't have the means to sue powerful players. The SPLC will sue these powerful players on their behalf. I thought, that's really inspiring. And I did not want to give two or three emails that weren't analyzed in context to any for-profit media outfit, even though they might do other good work. But I thought, this deserves very serious analysis. So the SPLC went through my emails. They backed them all up on a hard drive, connecting Stephen Miller's hotmail to his Sessions government account. And in total, there were almost a 1,000, which are now backed up on multiple drives. And my hope, something I'm talking to the SPLC about, is that they will all be released to the public and searchable so that people can look at the very secretive you know, administration and government, and especially government official, and see what they're really saying. And I also didn't want them to be two or three emails because I believe that if you're going to be a good source, you have to turn over everything and, you know, be transparent and not edit out your own words. Like, don't be embarrassed. It's like, that's who I was in 2015. It's okay if that's public. I'm a different person now. The more important thing is to view these conversations with this very powerful person and his ideology, which is not just anti-immigrant, which is how it'd be treated, which is very easy for the White House to brush off, but is steeped in race science and eugenics and this vile racist French novel called Camp of the Saints. All these things are extremely important to be detailed and explained to the public 
in ways that make it clear how dangerous this is and how urgent it is that we address it. You keep using the phrase race science, and I'm wondering, what is race science? I've never heard that phrase before. Race science can be best described as a pseudoscience which believes that people of different ethnic and racial backgrounds have immutable biological characteristics which place them on a natural hierarchy of above and below. That's not me saying this. This is what people who believe in the term race science believe. They believe that certain people, certain skin colors are inferior to others. And there's even a hierarchy within Europeans because there was a very popular novel in the early 20th century, not novel, book. Madison Grant's The Passing of the Great Race. And he talked about how the Nordic, certain classes of Europeans are being subsumed by people like me, the Irish, were taking over. (laughs) And by people of color, non-white people. And the theory behind race science, too, is that if this certain select group of Europeans, if they become a minority, they will be viciously persecuted, wiped out. And if this certain group declines in numbers, they will take away all the technological advances, quote unquote, with them. This is something that's described in an Adam Sewer article in The Atlantic about white nationalism's deep American roots. And it finds fertile breeding ground in conservatism because you always hear conservatives talk about the rule of law, the Constitution. And that's something that we can talk about on its merits, but that's best for the classroom on constitutional law. People who subscribe to race, science, and eugenics believe that people who are not white are incapable of upholding small government values. They're incapable of understanding the Constitution. And if they're in great enough number, then we will no longer have a constitutional republic. You see white nationalist sites like VDARE talk about this all the time. What does Stephen Miller read? He reads VDARE. Who also writes for VDARE? Ann Coulter, Michelle Malkin. They all talk about demographic decline. And that's what race science means, that people who, because they happen to be from a different background, are not only inferior, but they are a malignant force, which is going to destroy supposedly Western civilization. And Western civilization to these people, the people who subscribe to this discredited evil ideology, is that Western civilization is simply a certain group of white people because they believe that culture springs from race. A sentiment like, Haiti is where it is because it wasn't colonized long enough. And this was a statement made by Mark Krikorian, the executive director of the Center for Immigration Studies. You know, there's a whole treasure trove of emails, I think, between Stephen Miller and members of this group, the Center for Immigration Studies, which is one of the groups that is advising the current White House and the current administration on immigration policy. I guess I want to hear you unpack that statement. How does it show proof of the ideology that these organizations are steeped in? And how is that actually turning into policy affecting the lives of millions of people? Whenever Kerkorian says that, saying Haiti would be a much better place if it was colonized enough, he's treating native Haitians as inhuman and furthermore objects that would be better off if they're put to use by the white man by saying that if a certain group was enslaved, they would do better for themselves. This was the same argument made for slavery before the Civil War. It is utterly vile and dehumanizing. And I would like to ask why publications like the Washington Post, in the interest of seeing both sides, Go to someone like Mark Corin who believes that people should be enslaved to better themselves. Ask them that question. 
because there's no two sides about this. There's no room in public discussion to treat people as inhuman as objects to be abused because of the color of their skin. And furthermore, this was something that the Southern Poverty Law Center and Michael Hayden was very insistent to point out, is that Miller was citing VDARE when talking about ending temporary protective status, meaning that people who had their homes devastated by hurricanes and sought to come to the U.S. to seek refuge should be turned away. And whenever that hurricane hit the Bahamas, you saw that temporary protective status was cut off and desperate people all of a sudden whose homes have been destroyed, they're standing knee-deep in stormwater, being told that they can't seek refuge in the United States, they're not welcome here. And these were people of color. This is not a coincidence. Every single policy always affects people of color. Funny how that happens. Yes. Incredible. Got these folks there. Most of them are in their 30s and 20s. Uh, Yes, many of them came when they were very young. But the problem is it's an arbitrary amnesty program. And the Republican base and fair will not accept any legislative amnesty for this group unless the Democrats come forward and meet the administration halfway on Donald Trump's very specific promises during his campaign Mm -hmm. to secure the borders, build the wall, interior enforcement and cut chain migration. The fact is the Federation on American Immigration Reform and the Center for Immigration Studies and Numbers USA and over the years a number of other organizations have singularly and collectively created this entire framing of the immigration debate. Um, And now they have somebody in the White House who is able and willing to execute these plans that have been forged over the past 40 years. You mentioned something about the Camp of the Saints. I actually have a copy of that book, and I actually trudged my way through it and actually read it. It's a shockingly racist novel, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts about Stephen Miller's and or Steve Bannon's affinity for this book. Stephen Miller, I believe, introduced it to Steve Bannon because Bannon did not start talking about it on his radio show until Miller was emailing both of us about that book. This is a book in which a man of color, Indian descent, is nicknamed the Turd Eater, Mm -hmm. in which a woman is raped to death by refugees and is implied to have enjoyed it. It is one of the most disgusting things. I've not been able to trudge through it. I should at some point. And I had never read it. It was on the bookshelves of many far-right people that I knew because it's some sort of token for them. I was actually told not to read it because it was too violent by men in the movement. But it struck me as curious that someone like Miller would know about this book because the only people who I knew about it were other white nationalists, like Peter Brimlow, like many other people whose names will be revealed this coming year. Right. And he was pushing it hard behind the scenes and also pushing it to Bannon and pushing it to Julia Hahn, who is now special assistant to the president. Hahn wrote many stories referencing Camp of the Saints and was always trying to tie it to Pope Francis by saying because he wanted to welcome refugees into Europe in 2015, whenever that huge wave was coming from the Middle East and from Africa in particular, that the Pope was opening up Europe to its doom, basically. That's how they viewed it, as an existential crisis, because they thought that white people would decline in number, would be attacked, And there was also an element of huge Islamophobia in there because all of a sudden there'd be the mysterious no-go zones popping up and they tried to enforce Sharia law on secular European countries. Just tremendous paranoia stemming from a fevered reading of this book and how Miller would always reference it from the point of non-white people are here to take over the continent and extinguish white Europeans. 
And it's a novel. It's a fiction novel, but I guess it's attained some sort of cult classic status amongst the alt-right. But reference to it and reliance on it within our own government is extremely concerning to me. It is terrifying because Feedair does a great deal of fundraisers because they have to limp along and keep their website afloat. And so right now they've been praising Miller since the emails were released saying, we're glad he reads Vitor. He needs to read more of it. And they're mm. doing a raffle right now, giving away, I believe it's 20 copies of Camp of the Saints to one lucky donor or to 20 lucky donors. So they're proud. The far right is very proud that this vile, violent book is determining racial policy because immigration is a racial policy now in the U.S., and I'm baffled as to why other reporters and other people from the media have not been asking Stephen Miller very basic questions like, do you read V-Dare? Have you read Camp of the Saints? And he can't say no because he clearly has, according to the emails. I really feel that many media outlets have dropped the ball here. And I believe it's in part because Miller grants them access to the administration. We haven't had a press conference in over 400 days, have we? It's been some time. The administration is playing a lot of the press for fools right now, and the press is not willing to ask, why are you praising Calvin Coolidge's 1924 Immigration Act whenever that same act was praised by Adolf Hitler for its eugenic qualities? Why don't we ask these very important and very basic questions of the people who were not elected? For all the talk about the deep states, like, Miller wasn't elected. He's a bureaucrat. He's an advisor. And why is no one holding them accountable? This is an election year. Do we really want four more years of separating children from their parents because they happen to be born in Mexico? Nope. Is that what we want? I think that a lot of people think that this place that we're in right now with separating parents from children and the discrimination and the racism and the xenophobia is because of Donald Trump, not that he is a result from all of those things that existed beforehand and that this has been perhaps a very systematic, long journey to get to this point. And Donald Trump is basically just the mouthpiece for it. How do you feel about that? Do you think that this has all been a very premeditated process to get us to this point? Yes, I agree with Hassan that this has been decades in the making. They have been working on this, the far right, for a long time. Going back to Calvin Coolidge, going back to Madison Grant, going back to John Tanton. And one of the things Tanton was very concerned about was population. And he tied that to immigration, which is why he founded the Federation for Immigration Reform in the late 1970s. FAIR was founded in 1979 by a man named John Tanton. Around the time he started FAIR, John Tanton was writing stuff like this, quote, to govern is to populate. Will the present majority peaceably hand over its political power to a group that is simply more fertile? As whites see their power and control over their lives declining, will they simply go quietly into the night or will there be an explosion? For nine of the first years of its existence, as we've reported on this show, John Tanton's FAIR organization received more than a million dollars in funding from a a group called the Pioneer Fund. The Pioneer Fund is an outfit that bankrolls all sorts of controversial research about race and intelligence, essentially aiming at proving the racial superiority of white people. We all know about the exponential increase that's taken place in the last hundred years or so. And the same thing happens each year in the the buildup of the bees in the hive. But the thing we don't notice about human population that we see in the beehive is that there's an exponential decrease toward the end of the year. This time of year, the worker bees are throwing the drones out to starvation and death. And the, uh, 
numbers are going down to maybe about a tenth of what they were during the height of the season. Then they'll stay down there at the bottom of that bell-shaped curve until they build up again the next spring. So it's a cyclical thing that's normal and uh, raises interesting questions about the human enterprise. And before that, he and his wife, Mary Lou, they were funding Planned Parenthood outfits as a way of, they called it passive eugenics, to encourage women to have fewer children. And if you're tying that to immigration, immigration in the U.S. has always been caught up in racial quotas, especially before 1965, whenever Ted Kennedy and the Hart Seller Act was passed. Part of the Great Society remaking of the American society, basically. Donald Trump, it's not coming solely from him. Again, it's been decades in the making. And one of the ways I heard the far right, especially prominent members, describe Trump, and unfortunately I may have coined this term, it was a phrase that we all said to each other and used, was Trump is the vehicle and we know how to drive. Because Trump, to me, I was talking to another conservative friend. He's ambivalent about Trump. He doesn't really support him. But he said Trump is like a mastodon that was frozen in like the 1980s. (laughs) And when he was elected, he began to thaw out. (laughs) So he still has that 1980s mentality of race and crime and things like that. But paired with the resurgence of the alt-right and how someone like Miller is able to ingratiate himself to Trump by just being 100% loyal, no matter how wrong the president is. Stephen is an excellent guy. He's a wonderful person. People don't know him. He's a wonderful, been with me from the beginning. He's a, a brilliant man. And frankly, uh, there's only one person that's running it. You know who that is? It's me doing this in order to enact his white nationalist eugenicist immigration policies. That's the threat we're facing. The threat is who Trump surrounds himself with, because he's the one that can sign the order and say, go ahead. And he's the one, too, who's not going to fire Miller because Miller is very loyal to him. I think it's important for people to ask that question. It's been something that I've been asking myself for a long time since the election is where do these policies actually come from? I knew early on as an immigration attorney that I'd be fighting the policies put out by FAIR and CIS and Numbers USA and the other groups in the Tanton network. I knew who they were, but I didn't understand the centrality of Tanton's role in creating these organizations and also the ideology, the eugenics and the race science and the racism that these movements are steeped in until I started reading his papers. So I'm curious to hear from you, Katie, did you become familiar with these groups in the Tanton Network and your time at Breitbart and afterwards? And is this where Stephen Miller and the administration get their ideas from, from the Tanton um, Network? Yes, because the Center for Immigration Studies is part of the Tanton Network, And Miller cited them ceaselessly. And one of the things I was describing to the SPLC was how Breitbart was not a news organization per se. It was an activist organization masquerading as a news outlet. So we would receive press releases from the Center for Immigration Studies saying, wow, look at these numbers. The era of mass immigration is upon us because they always said mass immigration. Right. Um, That was a term. And mass third world immigration with the racial tinge to it as well. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. these press releases were presented to us 
and we simply were instructed to write them up. No fact-checking. I was never told, why don't you call the Cato Institute and read the numbers and try to get another perspective? Brookings just did another study on immigration and labor laws. Why don't you talk to this analyst? Nothing. We simply wrote it up as fear-mongering. And Miller, interestingly, too, as we see in the emails, he had embargoed material from Center for Immigration Studies and would receive this from them and then pass it on to me and other reporters, saying this is embargoed until 6 p.m. on Tuesday. And I had to ask, why is a senator's office holding embargoed press releases from a seemingly nonpartisan think tank? And I have to ask, too, why did no one at Breitbart raise a question saying, why is the senator's office dictating our political news coverage? I don't see Elizabeth Warren calling into the Washington Post saying, hey, we have an op-ed from Elizabeth Warren, but you have to put it under Washington Post staff and then make it the lead of your paper. And then the Washington Post saying, okay, <laughs> let's do that. <laughs> because that's exactly what happened with Center for Immigration Studies and just working with Stephen Miller in general with the way that he directed coverage. And I believe there had to be 38 to 40 of those emails where he referenced data points from Center for Immigration Studies, which is, of course, founded by eugenicist John Tanton. And I think people need to have longer memories, especially the press, and understand where this material is coming from and the motivating ideology behind it, which is very dangerous and poses enormous risks to the most vulnerable people in our society. I've been trying to tell that story and find out what's more about that ideology and my lawsuit to unseal John Tanton's paper is sealed away until 2035 at the University of Michigan. What do you think I'll find? What do you think we'll find in there? I'm not as well-versed in Tanton's writings as many experts and as you are, but I think it will be helpful to point out, and I can draw a parallel between the Tanton papers and the Miller emails here, because it's very important for the public to realize that Stephen Miller is recommending this book called Camp of the Saints to reporters and to heads of media companies. I would be very interested to see what John Tanton said in his unguarded moments about eugenics and about right. people who are not white, about Madison Grant, about Kevin Coolidge in particular, saying, how do we whitewash this so it doesn't seem as scary? We're not talking about sterilization. We're talking about limiting certain population groups and just doing exclusionary, racially targeted immigration policy. I think if we have this in explicit words coming straight from the source that is very important for public transparency. And then we can ask groups like Center for Immigration Studies, which is a hate group as designated by the Southern Poverty Law Center, and they just lost a lawsuit <laughs> trying to That's sue right. the SPLC for libel. Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah, I Judge saw that. tossed yeah. it right out. And to ask, and this is a good way of defining our public discourse as we try to get out of this dark period of American history, saying, why are we quoting hate groups who get their money from a eugenicist? and treating them as a legitimate part of public discourse. And folks from CIS are on the Hill testifying at every immigration subcommittee hearing. They're putting out white papers. They're getting quoted in the press. What questions do you think the press should be asking about? What should our elected officials be asking these groups? You've mentioned a couple of different questions, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, should we be asking these groups? I would ask them, why are you presenting yourself as a neutral, unbiased source that's nonpartisan, whenever you are giving embargoed press releases to senators' offices and you are receiving funding from an avowed eugenicist who wanted to curb population growth in regarding immigration and build it specifically off racial quotas 
and who specifically opposed the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act because it created policies which derogatorily called chain migration, meaning if one family member moves to the U.S., then he can apply for visas to bring the rest of his family here. I don't understand why Mm -hmm. this is seen as unreasonable. And to undo the 1924 Immigration Act, in in part, again, I'm not an expert in immigration law. I can only speak from my experience and what I've written about. But to make it so that our immigration system was not completely biased in favor of a specific group of Europeans, which was based on discredited eugenics theories, instead to say, anyone in the world can come here and we're going to open up our country to the rest of the world. And there's different reasons why Shining City on a Hill, just being a more welcoming country that wasn't steeped in as much white supremacy, because a lot of the changes in reforms to immigration law came because the civil rights movement was pushing so hard for equal rights and equal dignity for African Americans. And I would ask some very blunt questions. Do you oppose the 1965 Immigration Nationality Act? Would you support repealing the Immigration Nationality Act? Can you explain why? Or why not? Ask them very blunt, direct questions and do it whenever they're testifying so they can't run away and say no more questions because they're not going to get up and run out of Congress once they've been sworn in. And ask them too, how frequently did you communicate with Stephen Miller? Did Stephen Miller ever recommend Camp of the Saints to you? Did you and Stephen Miller ever discuss white nationalist websites like VDARE and American Renaissance? Did Stephen Miller ever mention an immigrant in a positive or even neutral tone? Ask some direct questions like that, and I wonder what their answers will be. That's very powerful. And if it hasn't been said yet, John Tanton, he loved the book, The Camp of the Saints, so much that he acquired the rights to republish it in his own press in 1994. It apparently had its last issue. He started this social contract press back in 1990, a quarterly journal, and it's filled with all kinds of eugenics thoughts and race-based pseudoscience and the whole fear of the invasion and all these other white supremacist ideologies, core beliefs that you've identified, Katie, and it's been published for the last 30 years. John Tanton died in July of 2019, and apparently it's had its last issue, which is, I guess, something to be celebrated. But on the other hand, I'm concerned that perhaps it served its purpose. And there's so many people from the Tanton network now inside the administration uh, creating this policy, and Tanton might be gone, but his thought lives on. And we're seeing it turn into policy. We're seeing it at the border. I fight it every single day as an immigration attorney. And it's a very powerful motivator to ask that question, where is it coming from? It needs to be exposed. It's in the public good. That's what's driving my desire to unseal his papers, to tell at least that part of the story. And you telling your story as well, Katie, I think tells another huge chunk of it. Katie, I'm just wondering, do you feel like you've been deprogrammed in a way? Because you've said some really horrible, hurtful things. And to see how far you've come in two years, I'm wondering if you have any advice for people that feel like they are stuck in the movement who want to break out of it. And do you have any regrets? Oh, I have many regrets. I would say regrets about the pain that I inflicted on people who did not deserve it. Of course not. In part because I wanted to fit into a group of radicals and was too selfish, too immature, and too prideful to understand the harm I was doing. And I believe that if people want to come out of this, there's a few very important things. They have to take a fearless moral inventory, and they have to accept that no matter how you're feeling, be humble and ask for help. Please ask for help. Unfortunately, the right stops a lot of people who are stuck 
because they take different anti-fascist groups around the country, just local groups meeting together and portray them as a terrorist organization, anti-fa. Like you'll be targeted by people wearing black masks who are going to reveal your home address, get you fired, get you kicked out of your home. That's nuts. But they create this big boogeyman and it scares people. It makes them hide again, like on Twitter. And they're like, well, I guess my only friends now are people with weird frog avatars. (laughs) And it keeps like doing the spiral of nihilism. And this is a little bit weird meme culture, but you start with Pepe the Frog and you've seen these different more bizarre, weird, nihilistic iterations. And it does show a trajectory of people feeling more and more miserable and hopeless. So I would just say to people, if you want to get out, don't announce it, first of all, for your own safety. And second of all, because you're going to need receipts. I really encourage people to archive everything, take as many screenshots as you can, screen cap those text messages, save everything, download it, have it verified. Because I'm a researcher, I'm a little bit OCD about this, having multiple backup copies of everything. But it's important because when people tell their stories, they're able to trace their thinking and to trace other malignant actors. Because you do have people caught up in this and then you have real ideologues like Miller. And just to say, this is what I saw. I'm asking for help. I don't know if this can be useful to prevent more harm from happening in the future, but here's my material. Here's what I saved. But also, don't think that that's the only condition of your redemption. Reaching out to organizations like Life After Hate and talking to people who call themselves anti-fascists, because there's no two sides to fascism versus anti-fascists. The anti-fascists are right, no matter what, okay? And I've actually had excellent conversations with many people who are anti-fascist activists who are very kind to me and saying, we're glad you're out. That's good. And people are kind. Hassan kindly reached out to me and said, thank you for releasing these emails. And I think because the far right is very small, very dark world. When I was working for Breitbart, total isolation, very sad, deeply lonely because I just had the internet. And this company, which was radicalizing me, Stephen Miller radicalizing me, colleagues radicalizing me as I radicalized them because it was a symbiotic relationship. And your world becomes very small and dark. But once you start to reach out and begin to heal then it's just much better. It's like getting out of Nickajack Cave. Suddenly you see sunlight. That's very important just for people as human beings, for their souls, because you do need that and you deserve a life and it's wonderful to help people. So I would just tell people who feel stuck, people can reach out if they want to, they can reach out to me, but I would just suggest reach out to organizations who are used to dealing with people who want to be de-radicalized. Life after hate, number one recommendation. So I strongly encourage young people to contact them. It's really helpful. I just think it's really powerful that you worked at an anti-immigrant mouthpiece organization and you got fired from it for an Islamophobic tweet. And four years later, here you are talking to a Muslim immigration attorney with Alyssa Milano. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there's a certain poetic beauty in that. And I appreciate it more than you can know. Thank you. I feel very blessed, very humble. I've had so much help along the way and I just will be eternally grateful for people who, whenever I reached out for help, they helped. And so I just want to let people know that there's hope and you don't have to be surrounded by hatred all your life. Life is beautiful. People are wonderful. (laughs) You know, connect with them. So thank you. Right. Oh, absolutely, Katie. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you guys so much. (laughs) This could be a storm in a teacup and it could all be for nothing. This could I could have said, Let, let's don't do this publicly. Let's have a small private funeral. But, you know, that's not who Heather was. Anybody who knew Heather said, yep, this is the way she had to go, big and large. Had to have the world involved because that's my child. 
She's just that way. Always has been and she will continue to be. Because here's the message. Although Heather was a caring and compassionate person, so are a lot of you. A lot of you go that extra mile. And I think the reason that what happened to Heather has struck a chord is because we know that what she did is achievable. We don't all have to die. We don't all have to sacrifice our lives. They tried to kill my child to shut her up. Well, guess what? You just magnified her. White nationalism is embedded in our immigration policy, but it's not just there. It exists across our government at the federal, state, and even local levels, and it's something we all have to combat. It's why we need brave people like Katie, who had to confront the harm she did and then do the work to undo it. But it also takes the rest of us to call it out, to vote against it, and to educate those in our neighborhoods and communities about this evil and its effects. It's why I sued for the release of the Tanton Papers. We need the bright light of day to shine into the darkest places of our government. I won't stop fighting, and I need you all to fight with me, with Katie, and with Alyssa. Sorry, not sorry. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread